I am convinced that the use case for this for the for diplomacy, like there's a lot of lot of potential, right? I've been watching a series of the videos, the review videos, and people like showing the features and stuff like that. I am I'm less interested in like the ability to sit in Times Square and watch a Mr. Beast video yeah. uh, than I am the the idea that there might be a technology that would allow us to connect as human beings. Uh, across vast distances and make it feel much more like a real interaction than than this, which feels this feels like an interaction that we're having. But it's there's there's several things that are sort of missing from the you know ingredients missing from the recipe of like a nice good social interaction. And so like I feel like that if if the the Vision Pro Pro Vision Pro Vision Pro can create those ingredients and like give us what zoom is cannot give us that to me offers a lot of a lot of potential so i'm I'm starting to become convinced on the diplomacy side less that this there's a use for this in the consumer you know i can check my email in my head or whatever i i I, i'm less convinced about that but i think the diplomacy bit is is good Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capolo. I am an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Uh, Marcus. I'm living the spatial computing VR headset lifestyle now. I can't wait to hear about this. Thanks to the generosity of the College of William & Mary. Shout out to Mark over at the Global Research Institute for successfully managing to acquire an Apple Vision Pro to aid in our research. And so I have that headset with me now and I've spent, we're recording on Wednesday, so I had it since Friday. So I've spent, you know, several days trying it out um, and thinking about what this means for both watching 3D movies and for international diplomacy. And I thought maybe we could talk a little bit today about the role of augmented reality or virtual reality in in international negotiations. If you're, if you're up for it, I'm definitely. <laughs> I mean, is there a topic that would be uh, that'd be less up for than this? More up for? <laughs> more up for than this? I, that's what I meant to say. Not the Freudian slip of the the first time around. So I have many thoughts about this headset, about what it says about the future of computing, what it says about the future of Apple. And its likelihood of being a, a commercial success versus a, a kind of prototype for future products. We can get into some of that if you want, but I think maybe to focus a little bit, we should talk about how what this headset means for international relations going forward. And, and I think like this headset doesn't itself mean much for international diplomacy, but as kind of a harbinger of what future kinds of virtual interactions might look like. This is important, and it's important because it is the first, I think, viable platform for real interaction via virtual reality or augmented reality. And that's not to say that there aren't other solutions to this problem or attempted solutions to this problem. So uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, has a line of products, the Quest and the Quest Pro, that have tried to do similar things in terms of allowing folks to put this headset on and feel like they're in the room with other people. But those attempts have not been great. And the the Apple Vision Pro is a big step forward in feeling like you're in the room, feeling like you're in a room, right, in a virtual room. And then the question is, can we add other people to that virtual room in a way that is effective? And so you and I have a, a project that looks at this and one of the one of the things I kind of want to talk about is 
what are the criteria that we would want to see in a product like this, a future product like this, that would capture the essential elements of face-to-face diplomacy such that there's some benefit to using a, like a headset to communicate rather than Zoom or a phone call or a in-person visit. And, you know, you have a book on face-to-face diplomacy titled Face-to-Face Diplomacy. Um, excellent choice for, for that title. Well, the publishers, that, that was their idea. I, I, I had much more creative names. but they what, was your, what was your craziest name for your book? I wanted, I wanted to go with face value. Oh, good. Like the, the value of the face, you know, it's like a double entendre, right? Because it's like I can take you at face value, but also there's value of having like face to face. I thought it was genius. They didn't see the, the logic. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. I know it is. But it's Sales nice that they higher. cared, right? Like when for my book, they were like, whatever, you know, <laughs> you're not you're not selling any of these anyway. <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing? Messing with the title. <laughs> it's the least of our concerns. <laughs> right. Like. <laughs> We made a terrible mistake. It's not clear why we accepted this book. Right, exactly. <laughs> this is, we're writing this off anyway. You could call it A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And it's, yeah, we like to call know. this like charity work we're doing. It's <laughs> right. just to help out. Help well, it's great for tenure purposes, though, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, anyway, so as the author of the book Face-to-Face Diplomacy, you have kind of laid out an argument about the importance of meeting in person, right? About how you get benefits from a face-to-face meeting that you wouldn't get from a virtual meeting. And this has been the subject of dozens of our podcasts over, over the four seasons we've been doing this. We're like, okay, President Biden's meeting with someone. And then the first thing I say is, couldn't that have been an email or a, or a Zoom call? And then we have the same conversation over and over again. And so in order to add something new to that diet, continuing dialogue, I think I would like to try to pin you down a little bit and think just of a, as a framework, just theoretically, absent any particular technology, what are the key things that need to be there that make face-to-face diplomacy useful in a way that a Zoom call isn't useful. So let me, let's start there. Throw, throw out some ideas. What do you think are some of these criteria that we should be, we should be looking at and, and provide us with a way to evaluate whether these technologies are going to be helpful? All right, Jeff. I mean, this is, this is a big uh, sort of like box that we're kind of opening the top to because there's lots of different, different ways that we could um, think about this. I mean, it seems to me like there's there's two different sort of sets of criteria that that we'd want to think about in terms of whether this is um, going to be useful for diplomats or, or leaders or, or something like that. And one, I think, has to do with the sort of level we can sort of picture in terms of like the level of realism of the actual like physical interaction. Right. So. When you, when you talk to diplomats or leaders and, and about the sort of um, benefits of face-to-face diplomacy, they will often say things like, there's just no you know, sort of substitute for being in the same room with somebody else. There's no substitute for being able to you know, shake their hand, um, you know, give them a, a tap on the shoulder or, or something like that to show sort of like a physical like human, human connection. But furthermore, the benefit of, of these types of interactions, when you sort of drill down, uh, at what they're what they're getting at is they often feel like they can get a better read of the person when they're interacting in, in person. So, from from a realism perspective, like what are the things that we would look for in terms of like being able to replicate a physical interaction? It would be things related to the the cues and the clues that you're able to get uh, in a face to face interaction with somebody that largely are you know in the face, but not not solely in the face, right? So um, the the sort of expressive body be- behaviors, the expressive behaviors that come from you know 
body position and how people are, are sitting and whether they're crouched over and things like that. So we can think about sort of a group of things that we need to uh, be able to replicate at the sort of like realism level. And so that's one kind of set of criteria that we can talk about. The other set of criteria is sort of like what's around the interaction it's, itself, right? So one of the other things that, that people often talk about uh, in the benefits of a of face-to-face interaction is that there are certain moments in time where you can be you know, fairly sure that you're interacting with that that other interlocutor uh, alone by by yourself. There's no one else sort of listening in. Uh, there's no one else that's that's sort of like eavesdropping or having any type of meaningful sort of uh, effect on the interaction itself. And so this can be very valuable for for leaders, for example, who you know frankly don't have a lot of time ever just sort of one on one. Uh, with their with their counterparts, there's typically translators and phot- photographers and, and note takers and advisors and uh, all that kind of stuff that are that are in a room uh, with with face to face interaction. But the moments where they're actually you know by themselves can be the most productive. Uh, and there's some historical examples that we can we can talk about. So like that that ability to sort of meet just one on one. Uh, and be able to be alone in that process is is really valuable. So that's another set of of criteria. Um, that that set of criteria actually, I think, is is uh, it's always more important for this type of technology because that's one of the major drawbacks that diplomats and leaders talk about with something like Zoom. So the video teleconference is is great in the sense of giving you a pretty good sort of representation of the realism, at least in this sort of like two D kind of sense. Um, but what it's not great at is the ability to sort of exclude other people from the interaction because you just don't know who's listening, you know, uh, on the side of the, 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 the camera. You don't know if this is being recorded for future li- listening and stuff, stuff like that. So if we had the ability for a virtual reality or augmented reality technology to be able to isolate other people from the interaction and, and have some certainty uh, that what, what you're doing is having a one-on-one conversation that's not going to be sort of like broadcast to anybody else, that would actually, I think, be really valuable and be something that beats out uh, Zoom quite a bit because that is one of the concerns that a lot of uh, diplomats and leaders, leaders have. So I think it's sort of like two groups of criteria that we want to think about. How realistic kind of is the interaction? How close is it sort of representing or replicating the physical uh, uh, pieces that make face-to-face interactions and face-to-face diplomacy so important? And then what are the things that it can do sort of around the interaction to make it more likely that uh, people are going to you know, trust in it, but also find value in the ability to kind of exclude other people and be, and be alone? So I'm happy to talk about both. Uh, and we can just kind of jump jump right in if you want on the on the realism side. Yeah. So on the realism side, I I, I want you to tell me more about this because there's a whole, whole spectrum of things you could imagine that give people the feeling that they're the benefit that, that make the people feel like they're able to relate to another person. Right. That it's not just that it's a realistic depiction of the person that there has to be you know is it is it is it eye contact is it facial expressiveness i mean you can imagine situations where people aren't able to make eye contact right like if if i go to a meeting with a president as you know i do on occasion typically and i'm wearing sunglasses do i then lose the benefits of that face-to-face interaction that seems a little extreme i wonder if there is kind of evidence from neuro studies. I know you cite a lot of that stuff in the book that can help us understand what is it about staring at somebody else in the face that gives you that feeling of being able to kind of trust them or evaluate whether they're trustworthy in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with a video depiction of their face. Right. Perfect. So, um, 
At the broadest level, uh, one of the things that the literature talks a lot about is sort of emotional um, expression, right? And so this is this is sort of intuitive, I think, for anybody who's interacted with another human being. If you're having a face-to-face interaction with somebody and you're reading a certain emotional expression on their face and matching up that expression with the words that are that are coming out of their mouth and you're processing, you're getting sort of a read, I think, of their uh, their mental state, right? So if somebody's frowning or you're you're reading from them, you know, a little bit of fear as they're talking to you about this proposal that they're giving you with respect to nuclear weapons or with respect to trade or something like that. The idea is that you're kind of matching up the the quote-unquote information that you're getting from the actual text that, that's being you know communicated to you maybe for the first time with a, a sort of second level of information, which is what is being revealed to you through emotional expression um, about the mental state of the person that's that's giving you that information. And so that additional layer of information might lead you to believe like this person, you know, has something going on. Like I'm, I'm catching a little bit of fear in their voice or I'm catching a little bit of a trepidation or I'm getting the sense actually that maybe they they don't have the ability to deliver on this proposal that they're saying that they do because I'm, I'm, I'm catching something that's a little bit off. Now that's just general emotional expression. And so that's easy, uh, relatively easy to, to, to do on Zoom. Where Zoom fails uh, or makes it much more difficult is that the level of sort of um, uh, integrity of the, the information transmission or the, the representation of, of the image is typically not high enough. The resolution isn't high enough to be able to capture the more subtle uh, emotional expressions that are not like a big frown or a big smile, but rather what, what the literature talks about is micro expressions. So micro expressions are things that are occurring in your face all the time when you're having an interaction with somebody or even when you're not having an interaction with somebody that are subconscious and you're not even aware that they're they're happening. Um, but crucially, they're able to be picked up on by people that are watching you. And again, this is a subconscious uh, process. So when I'm having an interaction with Jeff in person uh, and we're talking about a proposal that he's making to me, I'm picking up on the overt emotional expressions that he's he's giving off, some of which are very controllable, right? So like Jeff wants to pretend that he's very confident in this proposal he's giving me. He can do that. He can have facial expressions that are going to reveal to me uh, or he hopes will reveal to me that he's he's confident. Um, But he's also giving me subconsciously micro expressions, which sometimes can affirm uh, the information that you're being given, but also can belie information that you're giving. So this is one of the areas where the psychology is really helpful. And they do these studies where they look at, you know, whether people are able to pick up on things like trustworthiness or deception, you know, in face to face environments. Uh, and what are the what are the things that they're using as clues to make those inferences? And it turns out that the micro expressions are the are the real critical ones. You can study this, by the way, by watching uh, on a on a computer get a video camera to to look at facial expression over time, and you can slow the camera down to like the milliseconds and see subtle changes in facial expression, which are the micro, theorized to be the micro expressions, which are giving information about uh, what the person is thinking or what they're feeling as they're they're talking to you. Sometimes you, psychologists talk about this as kind of leakage, like we're, we're, you know, controlling certain aspects of our face, but we're leaking information about how we feel and what we're thinking uh, in a process that we can't control. Your contention, Marcus, though, is that like a video teleconference like Zoom does not have the resolution to show you micro expressions. Is, is that is that the argument or is it like the two dimensionality of it? That's the problem. It's, it's all of the above. So it's it's the resolution is often a problem. 
uh, because these things are, are very subtle in the face. There's also in, in any given sort of like Zoom setup or even the, the fanciest sort of video teleconferencing, there are slight uh, delays and lags. And so oftentimes this is not um, perceptible to us at the at the sort of conscious level. But studies have shown that it's, it's happening at the subconscious level that we're not picking up on these subtle micro expressions as well because it's harder to do so because, again, when we're matching up the words that, are, that people are saying with the, the micro expressions, if you imagine that these micro expressions are happening over like milliseconds and if there's any type of delay, half a millisecond, maybe a millisecond, maybe 1.5 milliseconds, that's going to affect your ability to make you know crucial inferences about what's going on in the face in real time, like as the person person is talking. Yeah, and this is one of the things that people have talked about in terms of Zoom fatigue. The reason exactly. that we get more tired being in an online meeting than we would be in an in-person meeting is uh, the mental load, the cognitive load of managing the subtle lag that we don't kind of consciously recognize, but that our brain is working overtime to to um, deconflict to make us Precisely. feel like the person on the other side's words are matching up with their expressions and their lips and whatever. Exactly. And, and again, you know, it's not it's not so much a problem for the, the overt, uh, you know, emotional expression. Like I'm looking at Jeff right now. If he smiles at me, I can pick that up very easily. It, it My brain has to work overtime, though, if I'm if I'm picking up on micro expressions that kind of aren't matching what I expect to be there. Uh, just through my like intuitive having lived a life, I know like sort of about social interactions with people. I expect certain things and I get confused or my brain gets confused when this, the delay is happening. And so I'm trying to piece together exactly what's what's going on. You can imagine, of course, that over a, a group interaction, you know, with 10 people on a Zoom call or something like that, especially as time goes on, uh, not only does your ability to you know decipher these things go down, you get more tired and being more tired or fatigued is also going to sort of decrease the inferences or the quality of the inferences that you can make from somebody's face. So it's all it's all kind of combined. But the other the other piece of this is also that the 2D sort of nature of it is is an effect. I think this is like a smaller sort of criteria, but I but I do think it's important. There's been some literature that looks at sort of like the the 3D sort of nature of of faces and facial sort of interaction with respect to kind of like the depth of the face and subtle like movements of the of the head, uh, which can again sort of reveal clues about about what's going on with somebody's uh, mental state. When you're looking at a Zoom um, uh, sort of representation of, of somebody, you're getting what is kind of a 3D image, but in a, in a sort of 2D space. And one of the ramifications of that is that it makes people feel that faces that they're looking at are somewhat flat. Um, and so they're not able to, to sort of see the human being as sort of like nature intended, because you're not you're not actually looking at a human head per se. You're looking at a, a sort of two D representation of a human head, which you know might have subtle effects. I don't think that, that major effects, but does I think reduce the uh, sort of processes of humanization that often occur in face to face interactions. Which is basically when I have a face to face interaction with somebody and I see the other person as a human being, I can start to relate to them as a human being. I can I can you know start to build empathy, maybe trust with them because I, I begin to see them as somebody that's like myself. Um, if you are looking instead at a two D representation, it's harder to kind of see the the humanity in the other side because they look a little less. And I, again, I emphasize little, but a little less like a human being because you 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 miss that that depth. The the last one that that comes up in the literature also, and I think this is kind of interesting, is that the the so called interpersonal. Uh, space and distance. So one of the weird things about Zoom is that, you know, I'm I'm right now probably about a foot away from the little green dot on my iMac, and I don't know how far away you are, but but it sort of it compresses um the the space, the interpersonal space a little bit in some ways, but also exacerbates it in other ways. So in other words, 
while I I see you as being relatively close to the camera, I don't feel particularly close to you in this interaction. We are only, if we think about this from like a literal perspective, two feet apart, right? Well, two feet apart in a, in a face-to-face interaction is considered personal, intimate space. You ideally kind of want to be between two and five feet. Uh, any closer than that, and it gets a little awkward and creepy. Anything more than about five or six feet, and you start to feel further away uh, from the person. But what people on Zoom often say is like, I see that you're close to me, uh, but it doesn't seem like you're two feet away from me. It seems like there's like greater distance but uh, in our in our interaction. And so that that is increasing the sort of likelihood that I'm not going to view you quite as as human like or as a as a physical interaction that would we would be having in a face to face environment precisely because I don't know actually how close you are to me. From a from a again physical perspective, maybe we're, we're two feet away, maybe it's six feet. I just don't know. It's hard for my brain to figure out in this in this kind of uh, uh, plane how far away from you I actually am. Versus if we're in line at Starbucks and we're right next to each other, that's that's intimate personal space, and so therefore I feel much more close to you, uh, and I could have a quality kind of interaction with you. So I think uh, kind of if you bring all of these things together, there are there are areas where Zoom and video conferencing kind of does quite well. And it does quite well at the sort of capturing the, the bigger sort of more, more overt um, kind of aspects of face-to-face interaction. But where it falls short, I think, are some of the more subtle things that uh, become actually quite important in terms of having a quality uh, interaction, particularly in, in that sort of leakage idea and picking up on subtle clues as to what's going on inside the head of the person that you're, you're interacting with. Zoom has a harder time, I think, being able to, to replicate that. So if we had a, a, a system, we had a, an Apple product or a product from another, another company that was able to uh, give us the simulation of micro expressions. So, so the realism would have to be so on point that as they're literally happening, you know, on the face of Jeff, I'm reading them, you know, in my brain instantaneously as I would be in any sort of real interaction. If we can get to that point and I can see not just your overt facial expressions, but I can see the micro expressions that are occurring in real time, that I think will make the quality of the interaction better and make it feel more normal. If we can solve the issue of interpersonal space, and so I can maybe change how close I am to you. And so if I want to get closer to you and get into that three to two foot range, because I want to tell you something important, um, or I can back up a little bit and, and sort of, you know, increase the distance between us. I think that will increase the realism of the, the face-to-face interaction uh, as well. Eliminate the sort of like lag that occurs, the brain fatigue that's occurring. Um, and then lastly, like there, there are, you know, sort of bodily expressions that are also uh, important that that Zoom typically uh, isn't able to capture just because we're you know normally seated at a computer or the computer you know cameras at sort of like your shoulders and above. Um, in in real life, diplomats and leaders talk about the importance of being able to see the whole the whole body. You know, there there are famous examples of of you know even presidents making inferences about what's going on with another leader based on the way that they're you know sort of like tapping their foot on the floor or based on the way that they're you know sort of crouched over in their seat and things like that. So these are these are sort of clues as to what's going on uh, with somebody. You know, they're not talking about, but you're kind of reading and it's not just in the face, it's in the it's in the body. And so a VR you know, headset or an augmented reality that allows you to see the whole body as opposed to just the face, I think would, again, increase the realism and increase the sort of like idea that we're in a sort of physical uh, co-present environment. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think just to ask a, a couple of follow up questions here. So when, when we talk about lag as a problem, both in terms of the fatigue you feel, the cognitive load you feel when you're in a meeting, but also in 
making it harder for us to distinguish these micro expressions and understand the emotional content of people's words. Do we know if there's like a particular threshold? There has to be a point at which the lag is small enough that we no longer have these problems. Do, do we do we know what that is, what the threshold would be for, it, does it have to be perfect? Or is there just a point at which it becomes good enough for our brains to be able to handle these these uh, issues? That's a good question. That's a good question. I'd have to go and see if there's been any uh, studies that have looked exactly at that uh, sort of threshold. I mean, I think it's true to say that um, there are kind of better and worse versions of the lag. You know, I think, for example, like Zoom technology has gotten like much better than you know, even it was like three years ago or four years ago, where I think people were complaining more about about the brain fatigue kind of uh, idea. But it would be interesting to see if the people have looked at this, um, you know, trying to manipulate in controlled environments, like how how much of a lag there is. And at what point do we kind of get to the to the level of you know, no, this is affecting my ability to read you in a, in a meaningful way. I, I don't know if those studies have been done. I, I'll, we'll take a look, but I think that would be, that would be interesting. Because I think you're right also, the implication of your question seems to be that it's probably unlikely that any technology is going to be able to, like, fully... I mean, maybe maybe we get to the point where, like, you're just, it's so quick that your brain just doesn't, it might not yeah. be, like, 100%, but, like, your brain doesn't notice, right? right. And, so it's, and so you're able to kind of do the stuff that you're doing in a normal face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right. I mean, I already don't notice in terms of the, you know, the, the kind of conscious part of my brain. When I look at you talking, your lips seem to match up just fine with your words, and I have no sense of lag that's conscious to me. That doesn't mean there isn't a lag. There, there right. certainly is. And so I'm just wondering, like, how low that lag needs to be before we can realize some of these other benefits. But I'm a little skeptical anyway about these other benefits because I'm I'm worried that the idea of a micro expression is something that, by definition, people don't consciously know about, mm -hmm. right? And that 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 makes it empirically very difficult to understand what would be the factors that need to be present for a micro expression to be received by the viewer, if, if that makes sense. That way, because we, we can't ask people, did you see that micro expression? Because nobody is consciously registering the micro expressions anyway. It, it becomes very difficult to, to study what would be the, the limits of our understanding of micro expressions in a virtual context. Well, I, I mean, I see what you're saying, but there are uh, ways you can creatively do this. So one of the things that, um, people like, you know, Todorov at Princeton have been doing is showing uh, people in experiments, computer generated faces where the most subtle um, sort of like facial features are changed to reflect the idea is to reflect sort of like a micro expression, right? So if I look at two, two different pictures, I might not be able to tell you like why this one is different than this one. But what I can do is I can, if you ask me like, which one do I trust more? Turns out I'm going to trust the one that the literature talks about as like the micro expressions being associated with a trustworthy face. Same thing with like a threatening face, fearful face, et cetera, right? There's a whole set of questions about whether or not these things are like universal. We could talk about that or like more culturally uh, associated. But, but the idea there is like I can manipulate experimentally a very subtle 
micro express and changes and then measure what difference, you know, happens in terms of like the outcomes that you and I would care about, which is presumably something like trustworthiness or whatever. So you can, you can do it. It's harder if you're, it's harder to sort of ask people to reflect on their subconscious uh, processing. I totally agree. I think the way you do it though, is you look at outcomes uh, and then you have to make an inference that it was the micro expression that, you know, that that was the change, or that was the thing that caused the the change in the outcome. But I think it's I think it's possible. But I agree, we're not going to have diplomats, you know, basically be able to tell us in a qualitative sense what it is that they're missing, um, you know, from a from a face to face interaction that's occurring on Zoom versus in person, without you know sort of falling back on like tropes or you know just kind of more general things about how it just doesn't seem human like or 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 whatever. It's that is a challenge. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, it, for our purposes, the, the question is partly what benefit do you get from moving from a teleconference world to a virtual reality or augmented reality approach, which is this in-between land between teleconferencing and and uh, human interaction, face-to-face interaction. And it's not clear that there is a benefit when it comes to microexpressions. We need to study this, right? That maybe some of the things that a Vision Pro can do, for example, Apple's new product that make those microexpressions more readily available to the viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would need to kind of figure out what are the limits yeah. um, of our of our understanding and how much of it is related to, say, lag, which certainly still exists in, in this headset, uh, versus how much is related to a three-dimensional depiction of your face as opposed to a two-dimensional depiction of your face, where you know, maybe some kind of three-dimensional avatar, even if it's less realistic looking in general, might be a better mode of transmission for microexpressions than than a two-dimensional, more realistic version of the face. Mm-hmm. And and these are some of the questions that we need to really get into to understand, are we going to realize some of the benefits of face-to-face diplomacy in a virtual context? Right. I mean, you could also imagine a situation where the technology is such that it can... It- amplify the effect of microexpressions, right? So like if we take, let's, let's take, let's assume for a second, the microexpression hypothesis is true and that uh, individuals are reading useful information in a subconscious way about the person that they're interacting with. Well, if the technology can, can sort of um, create the microexpressions in a more robust way, making them easier to see uh, then you'd have a normal face-to-face interaction that might imply again it might not but it might imply actually that in some ways this 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 technology can be sort of more humanizing or provide be- a better ability to read the other person precisely because it's picking up on the things that the literature suggests are really important and making it easier for humans to see those things in another face right if it's subconscious and presumably, and there is some literature on this too, like there's variation in like our ability to, to read others. And like that has to do with emotional intelligence and self-monitoring and stuff like that. There's variation in the population with, with the ability to the ability to sort of read, you know, what's going on in people's faces. If you have a technology that can actually assist in doing that, that opens up a, a very interesting sort of like set of, of hypotheses that are testable and say like maybe, maybe actually in some ways this becomes even more human-like. Um, because we're tapping into the things that we think make it a human experience and, and kind of amping them up, putting on, on steroids. Uh, or also you could imagine like a bot running in the background, like one of these automated translation routines that we now actually have in a couple of these apps, uh, WebEx, for example, and Zoom is coming soon in Zoom, where if you're in a meeting, it will provide a real-time translation of what the, the person's saying in a different language to you. You could also imagine a setup where underneath the person's face, it says, fear, 
trust, <laughs> right. trust, trust, fear, anxiety, right? Because it's measuring the micro expressions in a way that you would never be able to do consciously. And if the, if the leakage hypothesis is right, yep. you can have like a, like a real time cheat sheet for what your interlocutor is truly feeling as opposed to what they're actually saying. Exactly. And, and that's a terrifying prospect too, right? <laughs> because we, you know, I'm not sure we want, um, well, you know, that, that ability. Well, it sort of depends on the, on the situation, but, but, um, I mean, it really is no different than actually like stuff that, that happens in, in foreign ministries, uh, and, uh, well, I'll just put it that way, where in some cases, the, the, their explicit sort of instructions after re returning from a negotiation or an interaction with somebody is writing down things that are much more sort of like qualitative about the interaction itself, right? So, of course, what did you talk about? What offers were made? This and that. But also, like, how did you feel about the interaction? Like, what was the sense that you got from the other person, right? I mean, I, one of the useful things that I – when I have, was for the book when I was interviewing people uh, that do diplomacy – like, I would ask them, like, you think face-to-face -face dipl diplomacy is important? Like, you know, universally, everybody said yes, of course. And then you sort of pin down, like, well, you know, what is it? Why? Like, why is it important to have face-to-face, -face, you know, interaction? And they often would report things that are just sort of like, you know, uh, sort of qualitatively uh, obvious, but also kind of like dubious from a scientific perspective. It's like, right. well, I just kind of get a better sense of the person, you know? Yeah. Or like, I don't know. Like, I just kind of like, I like them. And I, I saw that they were like me and stuff like that. And so I, the, the challenge here is like, it's very easy to dismiss all that. You can just say like, well, you know, of course, like everybody's got like these, these intuitions they have about other people. That's, that's irrelevant to anything. Um, but, you know, it's also striking that like, like literally like every single diplomat and leader like believes this stuff, right? And so believes that this is actually important. So try to pin down like what it is when they say, like, I just got a better sense of the person or I, 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 I've got value in having this interaction. Um, like, what is that? Right. And so that and that's where like the micro expressions and the 2D versus 3D and the, the physical touch and all that kind of stuff kind of come into play, trying to get at like what's actually what's actually happening here. So but but at, at Four Ministries, they will write down this more qualitative kind of stuff about the interaction itself and, and try to piece together, you know, both what is being said, what's being communicated from an information perspective. And then how do we. What was your sense? Like, what do you what do you take away from this? Um, is this somebody that you can trust? Like all that kind of stuff, right? So, so the point is, is that professionals are kind of already doing this. Uh, the, the sort of what you're suggesting, like the level of trustworthiness and stuff like that. This would be sort of in a computer assisted uh, version, which you know may or may not be accurate, but like it gives you like a little bit more information. Like this is what AI is telling you about this person that you're interacting with. Take it or leave it, but your your own read of the micro expressions that's going on. Uh, with this person so should lead you to X, Y, Z, whatever the, whatever the thing is. It's kind of fascinating. Well, I, th I got to tell you, you're making this book, face-to-face uh, -face diplomacy sound pretty interesting. I'm, I'm thinking I might want to check it out. I've, well, you know, it's, I mean, it sits everybody. on my shelf, but I've never actually opened it. I was put off by the, the title. I just, something more interesting <laughs> would have been better, but. You know, the other thing, Jeff, um, we, we haven't touched on the other set of criteria uh, that I that I, I think we should talk about at some point, like the, yeah. about around the interaction itself, not just the the sort of physical stuff. But I but I do also want to point out that, and, and I'm not sure that the augmented reality or the virtual reality will be, ever be able to like fix this, you know, properly. There is something about physical touch that that often comes up um, in these conversations, and, and there is also a large literature, as you might expect, there's a large literature on everything, but there's a large literature on on sort of like you know the the value of hugging. 
you know, handshakes, releases oxytocin, you know, these hormones that make it, you know, more likely to, to sort of see the other side to somebody in your, in your identity group, uh, leads to more trust, presumably. They do these interesting studies where they, like economic exchange experiments where you like have to like hug somebody and then like do a, a game with them. And in the other condition, you don't touch them at all. turns out there's more trusting behavior in the economic, in the, uh, in the, the touching group, you know, all kinds of like weird stuff like that. Right. So there's, there's some indication that, you know, this notion of, of being able to just give somebody a handshake or, you know, pat them on the back or something like that can also have uh, a, a humanizing kind of pro-social. Pro-social is like the word that, you know, psychologists use to sort of like this big sort of swath of like good stuff that comes from uh, social interaction, like pro-social behaviors, more empathy, more trust, et cetera, more understanding comes from, uh, in some cases, actually touching another person, having a, a physical encounter. I'm not sure the Apple Vision Pro is going to be the device that allows us to do that. But you can imagine a situation where if the Apple d- device solves all the realism problems we were talking about and then adds in that sort of physical uh, nature where you could feel like you're shaking somebody's hand, that might, again, add to the sort of like replication or the, the increased, you know, sort of uh, physical co-present idea of normal face-to-face interaction. Don't we have kind of a cool natural experiment from the COVID era meetings where nobody was shaking hands? So you could compare the success of diplomatic meetings pre and post COVID to during COVID when there was no physical contact. Yeah, that's a great we, dissertation. Uh, that's a great dissertation to be written. I mean, and it's not even <laughs> and I'm on the touch side side. It was all on Zoom. Right. So you could have like all well, these no, variables. There were in-person meetings where people would not shake hands. Oh, I see. You're talking so about like, sort of like later. Hold the, yeah. hold the touch part. I see. Yeah. Just very, just the touch part, but hold the in-person part constant. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great dissertation. Is anybody's out there, you know. We, you should write that, Mark. Write that up, Marcus. That's a, uh, I'm too busy, but I like that idea. Stuff. I All like right. that idea. Um, getting back to the Zoom thing, there have been several attempts to look at uh, both in an, in an AI sort of like algorithmic way of Zoom meetings that have occurred like at the G20 and, and stuff like that, looking at, you know, facial expressions and looking at, you know, body expressive behaviors and stuff like that. And it is it is kind of fascinating. I mean, it is, it is interesting to look at the ways in which humans sort of interact with one another on on Zoom and your idea of sort of like comparing like the 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 face-to-face environments where if we had like old videos, let's say of like UN meetings where you could like run it through the AI and look at facial expressions and micro expressions and compare those to what's going on in the zoom version. That to me is also like a very like interesting project. And if somebody out there in the world wants to get in contact with me and, we, and do this, I think it'd be kind of fun um, because that's a, that's a swath of data where we do have, you know, actual face-to-face interactions that happen physically and then these, you know, Zoom environments and we can compare the two and see what's what's going on in both, aided by technology, which is now able to analyze faces for us. I'm just handing out research ideas left and right here. Yeah, this is Because you know what? I'm a, I'm an idea guy. I, I don't really do much in the execution, but the ideas I'm... I'm I was going to say, Jeff, with. I feel like this is a, an evergreen sort of idea on the pod. You have, you have several good ideas. You just choose not to act on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, actually, doing the work is much harder for for me. So um, it would be nice if if you could just dole out research ideas, and then like a year later, there was in a publication somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see. Maybe one of our listeners will t- will take this and run with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but give us a call because we'll uh, or send us a note because we, we'll co-author that with you. Um, so so get get in touch. Let me just talk for a minute about what the new Apple Vision Pro does in these areas for those who have not been rapidly watching video reviews and and uh, or trying it out at your local apple store which i will say um you can make an online appointment at any apple store and go try it out 
and it's uh, worth doing if you if you haven't experienced what this looks like because it is a big jump, I think, technologically and in terms of the experience you get from existing commercially available VR headsets. So if you're even if you're familiar with the the MetaQuest products, this is a, this is a big difference. So you it's worth checking out. So in order to create a image for telepresence, an image for uh, have to have uh, meetings in the headset, Apple in its product in the Apple Vision Pro is faced with a kind of a technical challenge, which is unlike Zoom, there's no camera pointed at your face. So uh, there is only the cameras that are inside and outside of the headset, which are generally facing the wrong direction, to create a likeness that you could then use to have interactions in virtual space. And so Apple gets around this by creating a persona, which is what they're calling their avatars, which are a representation of the person um, that will be shown to people involved in like FaceTime calls or Zoom meetings or whatever. Anytime uh, something asks for what would be the front-facing camera on your phone, the the Vision Pro provides this this persona instead. Um, and so pretty much any app that is designed to work with an iPhone can can handle Apple's new personas. And the way they're done is the user is instructed to take the headset off, point it at their face. So you turn around so the kind of ski goggles are facing you. And it guides you through a, a set of things to do. Move your head slowly up, slowly down, slowly left, slowly right. Smile with your lips closed. Smile with, smile with your teeth showing, big smile. Uh, raise your eyebrows, close your eyes. It takes about 15 seconds, 15, 20 seconds. And then it takes another minute to generate your persona, which is like a like a video game version of you. And the what's really interesting about it, when you put your headset back on, you can see in the persona, it captures your eye movements very well. So you can look at the person you're talking to and it'll, you know, you can make eye contact, eye contact that way. It captures facial expressions very well. Um, in fact, uh, much better than the Zoom call that we're currently in where like there's a certain blurriness around my face because I'm uh, self-conscious about my... Uh, you know, how I look. So I've like dialed up the the Zoom correction so that it's trying to make me look a little better than I, I do in real life. And so the, the like the area around my face is actually a little bit blurred. So you can't see my wrinkles, which is why I have it like that. But you also maybe are missing some of the expressiveness of my face. And Apple, in its wisdom, has not allowed me to blur my face sufficiently. So you really can see a lot more detail around my facial expressions when I'm using this persona in virtual space. So so just to tie back what Apple is doing to some of the criteria you mentioned, Marcus, the question of not enough resolution for micro-expressions or whether micro-expressions be visible, I mean, part of this depends on how you're losing the micro-expressions when you have a Zoom call. If it's due to the lack of resolution, it may be that Apple's persona captures some of that resolution that the Zoom call doesn't. If it has to do with three-dimensionality, then the persona is definitely better if the viewer is also wearing a headset, right? And that's where you get the kind of three-dimensionality of the person in front of you. So when I put a headset on and have a Zoom call with you, Marcus, because you are headset-free at the moment, you just see a two-dimensional representation of my persona. It has like looks 3D, but you don't get the three-dimensional aspects of it. But when you're wearing a headset and you see someone else who's got a persona, they look three-dimensional. There is depth there. And so you can see maybe more of these expressions than, than you might otherwise. You have to get around the fact, though, that those personas are clearly less realistic than just a video of your face, right? They're, they have a kind of video game quality to them. And so 
you know, if, if some of the micro expressions are, or some of the emotional connection we get from talking to people is based on how real realistic their face looks like, whether it looks like a real human face or a computer generated depiction of that face, then you might actually lose some of these cues by going to a virtual world. Uh, you talk about lag, um, you know, that's an area where the initial versions of this headset might be at a little bit of a disadvantage because they're actually sending more data right across the, the pipe in order to give you these three-dimensional depictions of your face. And also there's significant processing that's happening on the headset in order to generate that image in the first place that Zoom doesn't have to worry about because it's taking a video image. So it's possible that this increases the lag. I will say in FaceTime calls with this thing, I haven't noticed a, a, a lag consciously, but when we were just playing around with this earlier, Marcus, you said you could notice a lag between how my mouth was moving and what was coming out of my mouth. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's an issue. That That's a, a an issue where that's something we can overcome with enough time, right? Enough technology will, will get us around that. But for now, that might be a problem. You talked about the spatial aspect here of uh, placing yourself in a, in a physical space or um, that, that you have in person, but you don't have on Zoom, the distance from the camera on Zoom. And here is an area where I think the headsets uh, and future virtual reality products offer some real benefit because when you're having a meeting, you can position your person you're talking to a particular distance away, and that's the distance they look like to you. And because you're in this immersive space, and that, that's another uh, point I wanted to mention, because when you're wearing the headset, it feels like you're in an immersive space where you feel like you're in a place with a person. That distance has meaning that it doesn't have in the Zoom context where you're just a floating box on the screen. So assuming both parties are wearing one of these things, there is a spatial aspect to their to their relationship that is maybe uh, qualitatively different in terms of the emotional cues you get from the interaction. Now, there is some talk, talk about future versions of FaceTime or Zoom um, where there could be these mutually agreed upon virtual environments. So you and I are having negotiations and we decide we're going to meet around a virtual conference table and we send our top aides to, uh, to a meeting to discuss how big the table is going to be, where is everyone going to be positioned at the table, what will the surrounding environment look like, just like you would do for a real in-person meeting where there's a lot of effort put into, you know, stage managing things. But this would be a virtual space where you would see a mock-up of it, both parties would approve, and then when you go put the headset on to be in that meeting, you are positioned at your seat in that virtual space in a way that was previously agreed upon. And so... The ability to kind of manipulate your spatial presence in a space maybe is one way where the headset moves beyond what, what Zoom can do. Talked a little bit about body language. Right now, Apple's personas are just uh, kind of shoulders up, but uh, you can see hand movements in front of your, in front of your, uh, your face. I think that that's an area where everyone's trying to, to push forward and, and Meta has done some things, but you get into some, some weird situations where like, what do you do with the legs? <laughs> Right? Like you have like, there's no way to see what's happening with the lower part of your body. And so you may, we may need new technology to handle this, like a, like a particular, particular kind of capture device that is mounted in front of you in order to get a three-dimensional image of your entire body in order to represent some of the body language that we want to, that we want to transmit. But in a real meeting, I'm often sitting at a desk and people aren't looking at my legs, right? They're mm -hmm. looking at my upper body. And so if we had something that could accurately capture just your upper body, that might be good enough for capturing some of the, some of these things. The main point I, I want to end with, though, on, on this, what, what Apple is doing 
is the whole idea of immersiveness in an environment. And one thing that's happening in Zoom is you are very clearly not in the room with me, right? And it's not just that your background doesn't match my background. It's that you're floating in a two-dimensional window on my computer screen while I have a whole bunch of other things open in other windows because otherwise I'd have to listen to what you're saying. I got to multitask. And in the headset, in the Vision Pro and in future headsets, you are potentially in an immersive experience with your counterpart in a way that it's hard to describe until you've done it. And I think is potentially a key issue in feeling like you have that face-to-face interaction. And it's hard to really quantify this, and we need more studies to, to look at these things. But like some of what Apple does in FaceTime right now is you turn toward the person you're talking to, and they see your face move in that direction. They see your eyes move in that direction. You are physically located in a space with them. The sound comes from the direction of where their face is. Mm-hmm. It's not just general sound. If you're in an environment that's like open, the sound echoes differently than if you're in a closed environment. And all of this is to create this illusion of being in the room, this immersive feeling. And I think there may be something to this when we think about what are some of the benefits of being in an in-person environment versus being in a virtual environment. If we can capture that immersive feeling, the feeling of being in a room in this other way, that may have something to do with it that may be useful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I as you were talking, I was thinking about... Um some of the other reasons why face-to-face diplomacy might be uh, useful or important that don't really have to do precisely with the sort of like micro expressions or the, or the realism. And you hit on a number of things that I think are, are potentially quite relevant. So um, one of the projects that I've been working on with uh, Nicholas Wheeler, my, my co-author is thinking about sort of like the, the environments in which face-to-face interactions take place. And we've been drawing off the work of a microsociologist uh, who's retired now. He was at University of Pennsylvania, uh, Randall Collins. And basically, he spent most of his career trying to figure out why some interactions that you have with people or, or like one-on-one or in groups uh, kind of you know, make you feel good and you have like personal, like positive chemistry with those people and you have like positive emotions coming out of the interactions. And why do some of these just kind of fall flat and you, or, or at worst, you come out of the interaction feeling like drained and you just didn't, you didn't really feel like you hit it off with the the person. And he has theorized, you know, sort of a, a very broad kind of theory that can be applied in many different um, situations. He says there's four four basic kind of ingredients that you need to have in a successful interaction with somebody or, or a set of people. Physical co-presence, barriers to outsiders, focus of attention, and shared mood or emotional experience. And it strikes me that, you know, what you've been talking about, about, you know, what the Apple uh, Vision Pro can offer really, I think, allows us to hit on each of these four in different ways, right? So we, we spent, you know, the, the bulk of the conversation talking about replicating the physical co-presence in terms of realism. But your point that, you know, being able to be in an environment that's immersive where we, we don't just have a good read of somebody's face, but we actually feel like we're there. Um, to Collins is, is very important. Now, there's lots of different reasons for that. He thinks that there's, there's something called cognitive attunement, where we're, we're essentially like our like nervous systems are almost like sort of like replicating one another uh, because we're like so you know involved in the same in the same environment and we're we're seeing the entire body and we're starting to mimic the other person. You know, so in other words, like being in the in the room with somebody might be qualitatively different than not being in the room, even if all of the micro expressions, resolution lag, and stuff like that is is dealt with and resolved. Like you were you were 
were pointing out. So physical co-presence, I think the product actually uh, offers quite a bit there. Barriers to outsiders. Uh, I touched on this before, but the idea is simply that I have to be able to be sure that nobody else is in on this conversation. This is not just about sort of confidentiality and, and eavesdropping, but it's also just about having a, a social interaction where you feel like you're, there's something meaningful in that moment that's shared between you and the person that you care most about in that in that discussion. Um, you know, so for leaders, when they're able to sort of like leave the translators behind and the note takers behind and go and just kind of say what's on their mind one on one without the world listening, they find that very valuable because it's, there's only two people that are in that space uh, and no one else is sort of part of the interaction. No one else is, is having an effect on the interaction. It's just it's just the two of them. So that becomes really important. The other two focus of attention and uh, shared mood. It's striking to me that. Uh, one of the things that you could use this technology for, let's say focus of attention, let's say we're, we're negotiating over, you know, borderlines and we need maps and, and, you know, we need to like be able to see what's going on in the ground there, right? Not only can this technology theoretically put two leaders or diplomats in the same room, it could put them also like on the ground somewhere, like in a virtual uh, environment. It could put them kind of like in a map. There's a famous, um, I think it was a Dayton Accords where they were, you know, going over with like Milosevic, like the, the, the lines of where, you know, former Yugoslavia was going to be divided up and stuff like that. And they would like got these big maps out and were sort of like using like, my, uh, uh, what are these things called? Like where you hold them up and you look through? Magnifying glasses. They're using like magnifying glasses to like look at like the, the very specific lines on the map. You can imagine a situation where two diplomats or leaders are like there, like in the, in the map or in the sort of like representation. And they're, they're saying like, okay, this mountain here. I, I see that now. I see like we should focus here because we have this road to go and the, the border will be right there. You can imagine all kinds of cool things with, you know, data visualization or uh, being able to be on the ground someplace where the focus of attention becomes very, very easy to do. And then shared mood or emotional experience, this gets at all the stuff that we were talking about previously, where if we can sort of replicate, you know, shared emotion, uh, make it easier to read one another. Uh, that might satisfy the, the sort of Collins uh, uh, ingredient, you know, that you need for, for a successful interaction. So all of this to say, Jeff, in addition to sort of the promise when it comes to uh, being able to beat Zoom uh, in terms of, of micro expressions and reading the face and, and resolution, all that, there are also these other sort of qualitative, I guess we can group them as sort of like being there or being in the in the moment uh, types of additions that this technology promises, which, if Collins is right, are actually some of the the more necessary things that you need to have a successful interaction with somebody. So that that seems to be very promising as well. All right, let's talk about this barriers to outsider. Is that what you're calling it? Barriers to? Well, that's not what I call it. It's what What'd Collins call it? calls it. But yeah, yeah, barriers what? to outsiders. Barriers to outsiders. So, so barriers, we yeah. talked about you know feeling like being the only people in the room, um, or like a lack of eavesdropping um, on on your on your. Interaction. So I am skeptical about this in the context of face-to-face -face diplomacy because the vast majority of meetings between leaders take place with other people in the room. And you in your book are not arguing that we should toss out all of the, those meetings. You're saying that there's still some benefit to face-to-face -face diplomacy, even with others present. Yeah. So I don't think that this is necessarily an essential element of the story, although I, I can imagine there are times when it's useful for there not to be anyone else in the room. But this doesn't strike me as you don't get benefits of face-to-face -face diplomacy if you're not the only people in the room. No, no, no. Yeah. So so the the we have to make a distinction between, I think, what, what I argue basically about face-to-face -face diplomacy and its importance really boils down to sort of like the the reading of the other person, right? right. It's like the 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 what I call it is basically you get a better understanding of their intentions, right? And so this helps to solve 
or potentially solve some of the problems in international politics where intentions are like really problematic, right? So if, if leaders can better you know, sort of get a sense of the other's intentions, that could be, be beneficial. What Collins is kind of talking about is a more sort of like um, social bonding type of of experience, right? He's like, when do you like hit it off with somebody? Because from an intention understanding perspective, you might understand somebody's intentions just fine, but still not like them, still not, you know, have a social bond with them or think that they, you know, are somebody you want to hang out with or you have personal chemistry with. So he's kind of going, he's taking face to face to the sort of next level and saying like, under what conditions do you get these sort of social bonds developing and sort of a good sort of experience? And for that, he thinks that you need the the, the barriers to outsiders. Right. The thing, The thing that I'll say too about what Collins is doing is he means it uh, both at sort of like a literal but also a figurative uh, level in the sense that you can exclude uh, outsiders in a, in a sort of physical way. You know, like they're not allowed into the room or we have technology that's going to prevent, you know, eavesdropping and stuff like that. But he also thinks you can exclude outsiders by using language, for example, that like only you and somebody else might understand or or the nuances of your communication are such that. They might understand the words, but they don't actually understand what it means, right? One of the examples that people talk about uh, in this in this argument are like, you know, nu- heads of nuclear states in a nuclear crisis, right? There's something about being in an interaction where it's just the, the two of you, it's Kennedy and Khrushchev, are the two people, basically, who, who know what it's like to have, you know, sort of the world be <laughs> sort of teetering, uh, you know, nuclear disaster devastation teetering uh, one way or the other. You ha- you're... You control that. It's it's up to you too, right? And so that's a, it's a very small identity group of people that kind of understand like what that that pressure is is like, and to be the one responsible for this and the responsibility that comes from being in this nuclear crisis. So he means it kind of like in a in a literal but also a figurative sense, right? So for us in the technology, I think we mean it in a more literal way. Although you can imagine a, a, maybe there's some technology product out there that's associated with this that would help also on the sort of more like figurative level as well. But just to kind of stay in our lane here, I mean, yeah. we're, we're not we're less concerned with social bonding, right? And like well, striking speak for up yourself, a, Jeff. I mean, I I I think social bonding is important. But yeah, you're I don't, right. I don't care if like Biden isn't friends with Putin, right? Like like that is I don't I personally don't want Biden to be friends with Putin, right? That's gotten us in trouble in the past. Yeah, like this is not my goal is for the leaders to meet and like feel like they're they're pals right. now. And so while I, I appreciate that that's an important thing for. Uh, the bigger picture idea of social interactions in the context of our stuff of international diplomacy, that strikes me as like less of an important thing because I don't, I don't need my leaders to bond. What I need them to do is exchange information in an effective manner and try to understand each other better. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to completely dismiss this idea of barriers to outsiders because I think that is a challenge for this technology in a, in a very real way, right? Like if you're meeting with someone and you don't know if somebody's recording this call, if somebody's standing right over my shoulder but is out of the image and is listening to every word, that can put a damper on our discussion. But I, I will say that in real life, this is also a very hard problem, right? Even in, even in face-to-face meetings where you can look around and see that there's no other people there, it's not clear that other people aren't listening to your conversation. In, in, in real-life leader meetings, I think the assumption is always that somebody else is listening to conversations. Um, usually the party that's hosting, right? Like the, the idea that, you know, just look back at all of Nixon's recorded conversations with world leaders, that this is not something new or, or different that only applies to the technological environment. So I will say that like, this may not need to be perfect for people to get the sense that they're alone with someone, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like it may, it may be that if I'm in a virtual space, an immersive virtual space, and I see you there at the other end of the table, there's enough of an illusion around that, that I, it doesn't bother me that even though intellectually, I know that, you know, you could be screen recording this or, or there could be somebody watching a live feed from the other room or whatever, that may not be enough to put a barrier in front of me in terms of exchanging information effectively with you, because the illusion is good enough. And in, in some ways, you can imagine that these technologies provide a way to enhance that illusion. When you think about like translators in a room, for example, um, we have a number of the services I mentioned offer automated machine translation of what people are saying. So you could have a call without a translator because you have uh, the computer doing the translation as you talk. And so there's a way of looking at this that technology provides us with a way to get other people out of the room and let us communicate directly in a way that we we couldn't before. I'll also say there are some options for verification mm-hmm. of the security of transmissions that are available. Uh, certainly there are additional complications in having computer-based communication, right, in terms of the ability of others to listen in. But there are also technological solutions to those problems or potential solutions involving, you know, encryption keys and making sure that the other party is verified. There is an aspect of this that is very unique to computer-mediated interactions, which is when you look at my avatar, my persona, and uh, that person is talking and the lips are moving, it might not be me. Right. <laughs> if if I hand you my headset and I give you my code to log in and you put it on and then you join a FaceTime, your persona will look like me. Right. And so there is a real way in which these computer mediated conversations can allow for the impersonation of others that is really hard to do in in real life outside of Mission Impossible movies, right? Where you're talking to someone, they look like somebody, but they're not that person. That's a a real challenge for for these technologies to deal with when it comes to international diplomacy, where there is an incentive maybe to put someone else in in that persona and have them communicate with you for for some reason. So right, I mean, it strikes me this is this is a potentially a huge problem, and you could see like a, a lot of um, potentially you know diplomats and leaders just totally dismissing the technology out of hand, precisely because of this this issue, right? I, if I'm interacting with Khrushchev, I want to know it's actually Khrushchev, right? You can imagine, you know, uh, <laughs> the State Department, um, you know, being in a situation where it's like, well, we, we should we really should send. Uh, let's not use names here. We should send this guy, right? Because he's the one that they're expecting. But he's really a poor negotiator. He, he, he's right. too easy, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send this other person who they think it's going to be this this other guy, but it's actually going to be this person we know is a tough negotiator and is going to do do us uh, a better job. That, I mean, this opens up all kinds of stuff, obviously. It's like the choice of who you send and then the choice of like who you actually send. I mean, it could be, <laughs> could be a really interesting <laughs> trooper. Right. It's yeah. like they think they th- we're signaling something by the person that we're sending, but it turns out they don't know that we're actually you know sending somebody else. Right, uh, like you want to have the president do all the meetings right. to, send, to send a signal to how important you take your interaction with, with uh, Aruba, right? Like the big Aruba meeting. You, exactly. want to set, you want Joe Biden at that meeting. Joe Biden doesn't have time to meet with Aruba. So you, well, no, so you he, might not want Joe Biden negotiating, right? You might you might want somebody who has right, better or someone who knows something about the the issue, right? Exactly. So you put the deputy uh, assistant secretary of state for you know the Caribbean right. in that meeting at, in a Joe Biden you know meat puppet meat suit, and and uh, the the people think they're talking to Biden, but it's really the deputy assistant secretary of state for the Caribbean, and you know everybody wins. <laughs> 
So this strikes know. me as yeah. This strikes me as kind of a problem. You know, this is where the deep, the deep <laughs> fakes uh, kind of you know intersect with the technology and the in the Apple product. Let me let me say two other things because you 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 said something bashing social bonding and then went off for twenty minutes on something else I wasn't listening to. But I just want to I just want to get back to I, I agree with you that that we we sort of view face to face diplomacy or at least I do um, as this sort of like intention understanding sort of uh, uh, capability. Right? It might help you kind of get a better read of the other side. And you said well. That's that's kind of good enough because I just want information. I don't want to I don't want to you know Putin and and Biden to be bonding with one another. And I think in that example that's true. But when it comes to things like reassurance, right? Like if you think about you know a, a situation where you're in a security dilemma and it's like neither of us really want to be in here. Um, yeah, you want to be able to convey your intentions, and I think that's what you know ultimately like you know Reagan and Gorbachev did at the end of the Cold War. But I also think it's important that the other side you know trusts that you're being sort of a, a a good faith actor in this and comes out of the interaction feeling like this is another human being that I'm that I'm working with here. I think that does open up some scope uh for finding ways out of of the problem that you're in. It's not it's not necessarily required. I mean if you if you understand the person's intentions, that might be good enough depending on the situation that you're in. But it strikes me that in some cases, you know, having a social bond is actually quite quite beneficial and it it, it allows both sides to kind of trust each other. Uh, a little bit more than they than they normally would. So I think that, that that is a good thing. But I agree, it depends on the on the context. The other thing that I, w- I want to say too is we've been thinking about this and or talking about it in terms of like leaders uh, and diplomats kind of negotiating with one another. One area that I think this is potentially really useful in um, that we haven't discussed yet is is in sort of like training and like simulation. Right? It's like if I'm going to go meet with um, some foreign actor and have a negotiation. The ability to sort of like train through what might happen in that interaction. I mean, of course, you can do this with real people, too. But having that person in the avatar loaded up with AI arguments about, you know, all the things that they might say, all the proposals that they might make, kind of, you know, making you have to uh, communicate in a way where you're sort of not giving that too much leakage, like you're trying to be as calm as possible. You run through the simulation 100 times so that anything that comes up in this negotiation uh, you're going to be you're ready to deal with not just at an intellectual level, but as a, at like a physical level. I mean, this is, seems a lot better to me than you know the State Department providing you with a a briefing book about you know before Camp David. You know, Jimmy Carter gets this you know hundred pages of what Egypt wants and Israel wants and stuff like that. Like that's that's beneficial. That's good information to have. But the idea that you could sort of like run through what that first meeting is likely to look like and some some you know uh, real world sort of physical ways in which like the actors might sort of like perform to, for lack of a better word. I mean, I think that actually could be really, really interesting. So it's not just necessarily at the actual negotiation stage, but it could just be like a really good training tool or simulation tool. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, maybe we should run quickly through the other main uses of AR, VR, augmented reality, virtual reality technology, and international security that we've, we've talked about before on this podcast, but training is a key one key use case for the military, for example, in terms of training, um, but it's also in terms of, you know, practicing for, for other events. If you feel like you're in the room, you may get a kind of experiential boost to your learning, to your benefit. So right now, Apple in, in the shipping version of the Vision Pro has a version of Keynote for the Apple Vision Pro. Keynote is uh, Apple's PowerPoint. It's the, their presentation software. And in Keynote, you can practice your presentation in a theater. It's actually a Steve Jobs theater at Apple Park. So the Apple's like giant theater. It will put you in that theater with your slides behind you and you're on stage and allow you to practice the, the presentation that way. 
And uh, you can imagine similar things in all kinds of different occupations. Yep. So it, the, the training aspect of this, I think, is a, a real, uh, an important step forward. And particularly for, I don't know, things like surgery or mm. um, manufacturing, where there is a kind of three-dimensional component to your to your work that requires you to have kind of spatial awareness of what you're doing having something like this to aid in training i think is, is a very useful path forward absolutely but it's not just training right so you can imagine these headsets as like a heads-up display for whatever it is you do so in the military we've talked for years about battle space awareness and understanding where all the troops are at all times and what you're supposed to be doing and where you are in terms of terrain, where the friendlies are, where the adversary is. And so the military's dream is to have something on all the soldiers' face faces that tells them what's going on out there. And this is not that product for sure, right? This is too fragile, too heavy, not not meant for that kind of use case, but it, it kind of shows how something like this could be useful. But in the context of international diplomacy, the heads-up display for your discussion with someone in virtual space is really potentially very useful. So you're in that virtual space. What the person on the other side sees is just your persona. They don't see that you also have in front of you your talking points, your live feed from your aide telling you what you should say in response to what the other side is saying, uh, mm -hmm. the real-time data feed of what's going on in, in the conflict that you're talking about. So all of that can make you a more effective negotiator or discussant in a conversation. And so you can imagine lots of options when it comes to having this as a device that aids you in your actual job. And then the last piece of this that we've talked about in the past is the public education idea mm -hmm. that one way to drive home to the public the importance of international security risks that we talk about all the time on this podcast is to have them experience it in a way. And we talked about a few podcasts back, we talked about some apps that are already available for the Quest that help you experience what it would be like to, say, make the decision to respond to a potential nuclear strike against the United States or what it was like to be in Hawaii during... Uh, false alarm of a missile test uh, of a missile launch uh, by North Korea against Hawaii. They didn't know at first that it was a false alarm. So, so to give you those experiences to help you, the public, understand what these challenges are in the hopes that that, you know, galvanizes you to do something about this in the world, about these challenges that we face. And here, you know, the more immersive the experience, the, the more kind of visceral your reaction to it. So Apple's product ships with what they call immersive experiences. And uh, one of them is, it's almost like an IMAX movie, but you feel like you're there of a woman who tight ropes across the fjords, <laughs> you know, way up in there on these mountains. Scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. Right. And you feel it. Right. You feel like you're there. And, uh, you know, people are talking about how this, this this is the most terrifying experience they ever had. Just sitting there in a headset watching this this woman just tightrope across this wire. And, you know, you could imagine something like that for nuclear threats. For climate change, of feeling like you are experiencing something that otherwise you would only have kind of an intellectual understanding of, and so the the, pro, the you know people have talked about this for years and years the the prospect of virtual reality as a way to kind of uh, communicate the importance of these of these experiential um, of the experiential learning is uh, something that maybe this new product, Apple Vision Pro, is one step toward making that a more ubiquitous use case for these technologies. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. I think the, other, the last thing I would add, um, 
is the sort of reduction in, in cost, right? So like one of the things about diplomacy, if you're going to do it in a face-to-face way, it's, it's expensive, you know, and it's, um, it takes time. You got to travel. I mean, we've talked about in this podcast before how sometimes those are good things because you're signaling, like, I care a lot about this issue. I'm going to hop on a plane and fly to Ukraine and, you know, that kind of thing. But there are also a lot of instances where um, the, the diplomacy that doesn't take place because it's costly in time and money or whatever, opportunity costs, you can imagine there are situations that probably would have benefited from having that diplomacy, but it didn't happen. And so I think for those cases, this might be a really beneficial tool. Also for for countries, frankly, that don't have the resources um, to travel as much and to have as many negotiators at the World Trade Organization or the UN or whatever, you know, situations where there are are sort of uh, discrepancies in the ability for states to actually engage in face-to-face diplomacy might also uh, be quite beneficial for um, or the the product might be quite beneficial for them. So I think there are, you know, lots of different exciting uh, reasons to think that this might be a game changer uh, for both the highest levels of, of diplomacy, you know, the, the Biden and G's of the world, but also just, you know, from training to, to rank and file diplomacy to small states who don't have the money to, to send diplomats all around the world. This is also potentially like really an important development for them as well. All right. Yeah, I I think we should we should leave it there. I mean, my 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 closing point on this is just that this new product is not the thing that's by itself going to make this happen. It just kind of shows the way of how this is such a it's a big advance, I think, the the Apple Vision Pro and it and because of that it kind of makes a little more clear how these technologies could be useful in these applications that we're talking about, where it was really hard to see before with, with the quests and other tech, other products that are actually shipping. And here we have a product that's shipping. It's very expensive, but it's shipping and you can kind of see it's not too far from where we are with this headset to where we can imagine real world use cases in, in international diplomacy. Right. And the benefit of thinking about it now is that you get in sort of at the ground, not the, the ground, ground floor, but like floor five of a hundred and you can, you can sort of, in some ways, uh, make arguments about what the new technology should be doing and should incorporate. So if anybody's going to you know, read our paper and listen to this at Apple or some other company and, and they want to get in the diplomacy market, you know, here are some of the things that they should be thinking about now as they, they think down the road five, ten years to develop the next you know, several iterations of these types of products. Well, and from the perspective of the, the entities engaged in diplomacy, foreign ministries, the U.S. State Department, you know, understanding what the pros and cons are of these approaches, I think, is really important because there may be things we can do to mitigate the downsides, to enhance the upsides. And, and it's, so we need to understand what does this technology mean for these discussions in the future? And frankly, no better person to be in that conversation than an expert on face-to-face diplomacy and whatever you do. <laughs> An expert, an expert on Apple products. That's what I, what I do. All right, Marcus, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Folks, if you want to give us some feedback, uh, ask us questions. I'm taking questions about the Vision Pro if you're contemplating a purchase. Um, you can email us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. It's at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. And uh, let us know what you're thinking if you have questions or or just want to want to leave a comment, please uh, subscribe in your podcast player of choice, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, uh, what have you. It helps if you leave a review, it helps us find uh, new, new, new listeners. So thanks for doing that. You can also support the podcast at cheaptalk.shop by checking out our vast collection of merchandise there. Nice mugs. If, you, if you're interested in a new mug, got a nice Cheap Talk mug for, for sale that you might want to might want to check out. And enjoy the Super Bowl.
and enjoy the Super Bowl, right? Big game coming up uh, on Sunday. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much for, for joining me. It's been fun, Jeff. I, I like thinking about the future and technology, and you're, I, I could think of no better person to have this conversation with than you. Thanks, Marcus. Folks, we'll see everybody next time. Okay. That was a lot of setup. Sorry. This is, I'm new to this whole uh, uh, podcasting yeah, I, with a headset on thing. Right. With an avatar that's incredibly creepy. It's not creepy. I mean, it's, well, maybe it's a little creepy. Well, we'll let the people decide. I mean, I think we should show them. I mean, I I picked the day that I was wearing my pajamas uh, that you're going to screen record. That's <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, and it, it just so happens I'm wearing the same shirt in my persona as I am in real life. But that that's not how it necessarily needs to be. Like, I could have worn, I should have put on like a suit and tie for the, or a shirt and tie, like something up here for the, uh, for the persona recording. And then I never have to wear that again. And everyone will think I'm wearing a suit. Okay, so let's just set the stage here for the listener a little bit uh, who might not be tuning into our live YouTube stream because we don't have a live YouTube stream. What what am I looking at here? Uh, I, I see Jeff, the person, the human being, the physical entity with a ProVision Apple thingy on his head. And then That's I a see... Vision Pro, Marcus, not ProVision. A Vision Pro, all right. And then I see a another version of Jeff, an avatar version um, that looks... Like Jeff, in many respects, um, but it's not perfect. And, and the disjuncture between real Jeff and Avatar Jeff uh, is leading me to have a creepy sensation or emotion. I'm not sure if creepiness is a... Is creepiness an emotion? I'm not sure. But I feel like this is creepy. Um, but my but, but question is not about the creepiness. It's more about, like, how is, how is the Vision Pro making your avatar at the moment? Like, how is it replicating your facial expressions and... Uh, smiles and stuff like that. So what you see is a computer generated representation of my face. It looks like Jeff in a video game, I would say, is like uh, putting it. It's not real looking, but it definitely looks like me. I mean, there's there's, like there's no (laughs) doubt that it looks like me. It's like it's pretty good. It's like an older, uglier brother of mine, um, I feel. I, feel like well, I was going to say it looks better than you do in real life. Oh, but, no, okay. that's that's not a very nice thing to say. Okay, it's not it, – like it's a little Uncanny Valley-ish. It's, it's a little weird looking. But it's also like really impressive that they could put this together in that time frame. Uh, like like – because if Meta has done this too. Um, Facebook has, has done this for its uh, headsets. But the, the advanced ones that Meta has done – like require a supercomputer working like 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 <laughs> over like hours or days to produce yeah. something that I think is like a little better than this. But but to have this shipping on the device, I think is really pretty impressive. It, and actually, like I don't know, it, you get you get a little bit used to it. It's not like at first it looks a little creepy, but then you know this is a a thing that has mannerisms. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna turn off my headset the video that you were looking at of real jeff so that all you can see is is uh persona jeff and yeah it, it you know it's weird because I, so i'm wearing a headset on my face there's no camera pointed at me right now all the, there's a camera inside the headset that can see my eyes basically that's it right and it can there's cameras at the bottom of the headset that can see my hands so i can gesture with my hands and you can see those and obviously it's looking at my face somehow but the the whole facial expression, where I'm looking, my eyebrow, like it's all, it's pretty impressive that it can capture the expressiveness of a human face. 
the way the way that it does. Like I think it's not bad. But how is it? Is there a camera like pointed towards your mouth? Like how is it getting your like smile and the you know that kind of thing? Yeah, like yeah. there is. How's a, it doing that? <laughs> yeah, I just to let the record show. I just stuck my tongue out at Marcus. Um, so yeah, it's, there is there are cameras on the bottom of this headset that are able to see my face, but it's like piecing together. Like when you're on a Zoom call, there's a camera at the top of your monitor or on your computer or whatever that's pointed to your face. And so all it has to do is project that, you know, over the Internet. Here, there there isn't that. So there's no standoff camera. It's just the, the sensors and cameras that are in the headset itself. So there are some on the bottom of the headset that are looking that, – that can see my face. And so my lips roughly match what I'm saying. Like, I mean, it, it it's pretty good in that sense. It, it shows – I can make facial expressions that are fairly realistic. Yeah. What I'm noticing is, um, and this, this is like, uh, what happens, I think with a lot of these things, like there's this, this delay between the audio that I'm getting and then your, uh, facial <laughs> movements and your mouth. And, uh, and so I think part of the uncanniness comes not just from the like avatar, like representation, but just like the, the sort of disjuncture between like, the words that you're, it's like watching a poorly dubbed movie. You know what I mean? Like hmm. it's, it's actually better than a poorly dubbed movie, but like there's a certain like kind of dubbing delay that uh, is making it a little, little weird. Okay. So I think it's been, it was a little better in FaceTime. So right now we're using Zoom, which is our podcasting connection meeting platform of choice on Cheap Talk. But uh, because you're, you're uh, stubbornly uh, remain outside of the Apple ecosystem in this way, Marcus, but FaceTime seems to be seems to do a little bit better with the lag. Like I did, or at least I don't know if it's FaceTime, but I didn't notice that lag in various yeah. FaceTime calls where I've tried this out. Yeah. It's uh it's definitely creepy. Like it'll take me a while if we're going to record the whole podcast like this. I mean it's it'll take me a while to sort of get used to Avatar Jeff. Cuz you're facially what's weird about it is that you've got this creepy little smile. Like you're not you're, in normal life you're not creepy. <laughs> but you're you're sort of like resting face with your avatar for some reason is like a it, it just it's like the subtle like smile upwards. And you're not that cheerful of a guy. So like that's like not normal for you. You know what I mean? I expect the dour kind of look that you're giving me now. Yeah, that's much more normal. Stick with that. I think the smile that you were seeing was me being happy because I'm wearing my Apple Vision Pro. <laughs> that's not a bug that's that's a feature everyone smiles when they wear this thing 